Hi, I'm Paul Simmons with Rocky Mountain ADA Center. Good morning, and I'm uh, Jeff Ames with Meeting the Challenge, and you are listening to ADA Live. Yo. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to Episode 72 of ADA Live. I am Beth Harrison with the Southeast ADA Center. You may submit your questions about the ADA at any time at adalive.org. Welcome, Jeff and Paul. We are so happy to have you on the show today. We are fortunate to have with us two of the best sign language interpreters in Colorado Springs, Colorado, ensuring that we meet the ADA effective communication requirement. We would also like to point out that sign language interpreters are not only for the deaf person. They are here to help everyone communicate easily. Paul and Jeff, we know that lack of accessible transportation affects all aspects of life and is a predictor of quality of life. It can make the difference between a life of inclusion or one of isolation. Both public and private transportation are covered under the ADA of 1990, Title II. However, coverage under the ADA for emerging technologies may be a bit murkier. Before we get into some of these emerging transportation options, can you give us a bit of context about the history of providing accessible transportation? Yes, um, I think it would be difficult to talk about the history of transportation and the ADA and access to transportation without speaking to one of the seminal moments of uh, the disability rights movement, which was in uh, July, July 5th and 6th of 1978 in Denver, when the Gang of 19, as they came to be known, basically surrounded a couple of public transit buses at Colfax and Broadway in downtown Denver in their wheelchairs and uh, refused to let them go as a, a protest to say they, they should be entitled to uh, use public buses just like anybody else would. Of course, at that time, public buses were not accessible to people who used wheelchairs. They didn't have lifts on them, they didn't have ramps, and in many cases, individuals who used wheelchairs who had tried to literally crawl onto buses and pull their, their uh, wheelchairs on board with them uh, were arrested for trespassing. And the solution offered at the time by uh, the transit industry and uh, the American Public Transit Association was essentially the use of uh, separate and unequal transportation using short buses, uh, which were seldom available on a regular basis. For instance, in Denver, I believe they had maybe a couple of dozen buses to serve the entire population of the Denver region. Um, so they were not... Uh, very acceptable means of transportation. So this is public transportation at that point in time. At that same point in time, I'm sure that for somebody with a disability accessing taxis or other services was, was virtually impossible. The stories of, of people with guide dogs being 
essentially ignored by uh, cab drivers because they were blind and couldn't tell the driver had left them or, or whatever. These things are, um, are, are not just urban myths. These are things that really happen. In some ways, what we're going to be talking about today is, is the way that that history continues as we look at uh, some of the uh, alternatives to transportation today. And I wanted to add to Jeff's comment that Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed and it involved a lot of people, including people with disabilities. They made it unlawful to discriminate against people based on race, gender, religion, and national origin. However, they never said anything with, about people with disabilities until the Rehab Act that was passed in 1973. And that applied only to federal funded entities. So any entity receiving federal money, it was illegal for them to discriminate. They didn't say anything about the state or local level. And then you had the ADA passed in 1990. So that gives you a little bit of background. Thanks for that brief history. Um, it really is hard to believe that those kinds of things happen. In fact, I'm, I'm here in Kentucky and I remember um, a separate transportation service because public transportation was, was not available. So thank you for that. It seems like we have come a long way in some respects. As you know, lots of new transportation options have appeared in recent years. One of these is the use of sharing economy vendors or third-party vendors. What are these? Well, sharing economy, think of them also as third-party vendors. And it covers a range of services. Lots of programs that are available online. And there's many examples, food services, delivery services, so on and so forth. In this situation, we're actually focusing on transportation ride sharing like Uber and Lyft who are leading this third party vendor service provider group. So that's what a sharing economy is. I think it's important to understand that this sharing economy with relation to organizations like Uber and Lyft tries in many ways to um, disengage themselves from the, the process of even being considered as transportation organizations. Uber insists that they're just a you know peer-to-peer -peer platform. I had a, a Lyft driver explain to me the other day that he sees himself as a customer of Lyft, and I'm a customer of Lyft, and all they're doing is, is connecting me and him so that I can get a ride someplace. So there's a lot of confusion. We're going to talk a little bit about whether drivers are regarded as employees or contractors, and this was something that was, was essentially new to me. Just a conversation I had the other day with this Lyft driver, and he says, I'm, I'm neither an employee nor a contractor. He says, he says I'm, I'm a customer. Uh, the fact that he's getting paid for, for that through this organization kind of makes me question that definition. But you see, it's a very, a very murky area and very difficult to tie ADA requirements into this. Especially when Title II of the Americans <laughs> with Disabilities Act covers government programs. In the past, public transportation was run by local and state governments. Now, with the advent of Uber and Lyft, they're private businesses. So they would fall under Title III of the ADA in that case. 
So that's where the confusion begins. That's at least part of it, yes, is that uh, we're, we're talking about, even though the Department of Transportation, which is typically covering Title II entities, covers uh, these organizations like they would cover taxi services and so on and so forth, uh, that is kind of a Title III coverage where the, the premise is a place of public accommodation, uh, not being able to discriminate on the basis of disability and the provision of their goods and services. So, so some of the murkiness is coming in because we're not really sure what to call these folks. Are they really transportation or like you were saying, customer to customer? It's almost as if the, uh, the, the options are moving almost too fast for us in some ways. One of the other questions I have along these lines are, what are some of the good and bad points of using a third-party vendor for people with disabilities? Well, as a deaf person, in the past, especially when I was in a large city, for example, I couldn't hail a taxi because I couldn't speak, and I was unable to communicate with the driver where I wanted to go. Now, with Uber and Lyft, I can use my smartphone. And I just open the app, put in where I want to go, and I get a ride very easily. It's been a positive impact for people like myself as far as independence, not having to rely on other people, having autonomy. I use Uber often, and I have been. I've had three drivers in that time who had mobility issues. So it's great for people with disabilities, and it's needed because there's, it, it's hard still for people with disabilities to find employment. It's kind of ironic that uh, Paul has, has found drivers who have mobility uh, issues who are fortunate that they can find a job through Uber, while on the flip side of that, in many cases, People with, particularly with mobility impairments, who use mobility devices such as wheelchairs, or particularly if they use uh, the bigger devices, which are much heavier, that can't simply be, uh, you know, they transfer to a seat and, and have the device put in the, the trunk of a vehicle. The number of accessible vehicles as a percentage of the vehicles that are available through these rideshare services is, is very, very small. So for people with those kinds of disabilities, access to transportation is, is certainly a challenge. I had an interesting conversation the other day with a friend of mine who is blind, and I was describing a situation that I had had recently and asked her how she would have dealt with it. Um, this happened at uh, O'Hare Field in Chicago, and I was uh, flagging a lift to, uh, to get a ride uh, to the suburbs, and I flagged the lift, and then it tells me proceed to the uh, rideshare pickup zone by the black sign on the, next, on the upper level. So, first of all, I've never left O'Hare Field that way before, so I was trying to figure out where do I have to go, and I had to go back into the terminal. I'd followed all the signs to the ground transportation before I even punched in a request for a ride and to find out I'm in the wrong place. So now I've got to go back into the airport and find an escalator up to the next level and then walk about 200 yards down the sidewalk to where the lift pickup area was. And there was a sign there that would quite, quite clearly to somebody who has vision said, this is the rideshare pickup zone. And this is in the dark, it's at night. And there were dozens of cars pulling up 
with their lights shining, people standing there, everybody waiting for their ride, people running out to cars, two or three cars away from the curb trying to get in. And I'm thinking, if I were blind, how would I figure out which one of these cars? It's hard enough as a sighted person, you're looking at nothing but headlights coming at you. You can't read license plate numbers. You can't see the color of the vehicles and, and identify which vehicle is which. I said, how would you do this? And she says, well, basically, I hope that I'm standing there with my white cane that somebody who knows that I'm a blind rider is going to look over and figure out that it's me. And that, you know, is, I mean, probably maybe one of the worst circumstances, but that's always a situation for somebody who's blind is trying to make that connection with the ride. Uh, even in, in paratransit as part of public service, quite often a paratransit bus will pull up at the wrong end of a parking lot at somebody's apartment complex. And for somebody who's blind, they're depending on hearing that vehicle or the driver and the vehicles at the other end of the parking lot. And if the driver doesn't know where to look for them, they can't find the vehicle. So there's a lot of issues that come up for, for people with disabilities in terms of accessing these services. Uh, granted, it's uh, by using a, a phone, a person who's blind can do the same thing that Paul does, where they can, you know, they can pre-request a ride and, and they can put in the address where they want to go. But when you consider some of the challenges that have come up, uh, I know there have been instances of people being picked up by somebody who wasn't their actual driver and terrible consequences of those uh, events. Uh, for somebody who's blind, there, there's certainly a high level of trust necessary to access this kind of service. There are certainly a lot of issues in terms of the good and the bad points, and you all have touched on quite a few. I, I didn't think about the aspect um, of employment, perhaps, for people with mobility impairments, and I never thought about the difficulty perhaps making that connection once you order the ride. So thank you for sharing those insights. What about self-driving cars? This is something that is really of interest to me and I think to a lot of folks. What effects might they have for people with disabilities and for ADA compliance? I tend to be very optimistic about future possibilities. I mean, technology has done a lot of incredible things, but I also feel like in a lot of ways, technology has ignored the needs of people with disabilities as much as it's done to compensate for uh, the barriers that are already there. I think the classic example of that is the, the advent of uh, Windows and the GUI interface on computers in the 90s. All of a sudden, something that was in, in a DOS environment with, with text and linearity and in computing, people who were blind had, had fairly good access. And the next day they went to, to work and they said, well, we, you, we've updated you to Windows, so now you just point and click at these icons on the screen, which for somebody who was blind, essentially said, you can't use your computer anymore. So as far as technology goes, it can take people to better places, but it can also take them totally away from the things that they, they need to do. My goal, my hope would be that as automated vehicles are brought online, number one, that we would uh, have legislation that would require each and every one of them to be fully accessible, level boarding capability for, for people who use mobility devices, and to have means of providing effective communication, both for people who are blind and people who are deaf, for people who are deaf blind, for people who have uh, impaired speech, that they would be able to communicate successfully and get to where they're going. 
certainly the capability of providing vehicles in times and places as we collect information, as we get data about where people ride and when they ride. I think that the capability of having networked self-driving vehicles would be a substantial improvement. You know, human beings might not want to hang around certain places at certain times uh, for the rare ride they're going to pick up there, whereas you could deploy self-driving vehicles to those locations and just have them wait for those rides when, when they come up. And I, I think this would be really important in rural parts of the country. So I'm very optimistic, although I'm sure there's some disadvantages. And I'm, I think that even though there's sort of these general concepts that we have and these intentions of the ADA about not discriminating, most of the implementation of the law is, is from direct regulatory requirements. So if we look at physical access, we look at architectural standards for access, and we talk about how steep can a ramp be or how wide does the opening of a door have to be. But at this point in time, we only have some vague guidelines, which are recognized as best practices perhaps, but we don't really have any black and white rules that tell people what they have to do at a minimum to make digital access available to people with disabilities. And it, every time that environment evolves, every upgrade, every change in technology presents new issues, things that maybe make things better for somebody who has sight and better for somebody who has hearing may in fact create barriers for people who don't have sight or hearing. Well, that is a lot of information and you all really kind of encompassed the technology self-driving cars into the greater discussion really of um, and the access of all technologies for people with disabilities. So it's a lot to think about and a lot to think about in terms of ADA compliance and where that takes us. ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about this month's topic or any of our other ADA Live topics, you can call us at 1-404-541-9001 or contact us through our website www.adalive.org. Let's pause for a word from our featured organizations. The Rocky Mountain ADA Center is one of a network of 10 regional technical assistance centers across the United States. The Rocky Mountain ADA Center's mission is to provide information, guidance, and training on the Americans with Disabilities Act, tailored to meet the need of individuals and organizations in Colorado, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming. Their vision is to bring the ADA to full implementation. They accomplish this by providing training, technical assistance, materials development, and research. You can find out more about the important work of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center at www.rockymountainada.org. The Meeting the Challenge, or MTC, is a national information services consulting firm that serves individuals and organizations with rights and responsibilities for compliance under federal disability laws. MTC has the broad-based knowledge, resources, and affiliate network 
to provide clients with solutions to solve their disability law compliance challenges and increase access for people with disabilities. Meeting the Challenge offers a variety of services for helping to make businesses or buildings compliant with the ADA, including self-evaluations and transition plans, accessibility audits, architectural plan reviews, website accessibility audits, and training and consultation. You can find out more about the important work of meeting the challenge at mtcaccessibility.com. Welcome back. We are speaking with Jeff Ames, Accessibility Implementation Executive Consultant at Meeting the Challenge Incorporated, and Paul Simmons, ADA Information Specialist with the Rocky Mountain ADA Center. With things changing so rapidly on the transportation scene, how are we keeping up with accessibility requirements? How do we even know to, where to begin? Well, I think first of all that there's a significant divide between the reality of how transportation is provided today and the way the regulations were written. Fundamentally, I think that the concepts that developed public transportation practices in the 90s have led us to a, a real quagmire in terms of how public transit services are delivered, uh, as well as these issues with uh, ride shares and, and private transportation. Historically, the Department of Transportation put a, a great delay even on, on providing transportation through specified public transit, which is like Greyhound and, and services like that. In other words, private bus services. And most of the inner city transit that's available by bus is outside of the, uh, the public model for, for transit. And those, those kinds of services were not required to be accessible for a long time. The biggest issues, I think, in terms of how we look at ADA regulations and accessible uh, transportation is the fact that a lot of this is, is based on the acquisition rules that are written into the regulations. When and where and why and how many accessible vehicles are required to be purchased by different types of transportation providers is really the baseline for whether or not we're gonna have accessible vehicles for people who, who need accessible vehicles. Um, that's one side of the situation. Obviously, for people who use wheelchairs or particularly people who use the larger uh, powered wheelchairs and scooters, um, the lack of accessible vehicles is perhaps the single greatest barrier to being able to use any kind of transportation system. So that's a, a significant factor. As far as the other aspects that we're talking about here with, with rideshare services, the closest thing we have to regulations covering rideshare services are, are those for taxi services. And most of what's written there uh, implies more about what vehicles need to be purchased and based on the number of uh, passengers a vehicle holds, whether somebody buys a van or something other than a standard uh, passenger vehicle. And then there's also the equivalent service standard, which requires these entities to provide access, even if they don't own the vehicles or have drivers to do it, to provide equivalent service through, you know, subcontractors or whatever. These issues are very complicated, and I think that we would have to argue that even regular taxi companies are not providing a very good level of, 
of transportation service for people with disabilities. So now we get into the ride share, and as I mentioned earlier, if drivers think of themselves as a customer of a system, or if Uber considers their drivers to be contractors and not employees, then they really can't dictate a certain amount. Um, obviously, an individual driver who owns their vehicle um, can't really be compelled under the existing regulations to purchase an accessible vehicle. So the only hope is to go to Uber or Lyft and compel them to provide a certain percentage of vehicles that are accessible, which is in and of itself going to take a lot of litigation. It's going to take the courts making certain decisions. I honestly believe that until we write some new laws and actually put some specific regulations on how and and where these types of services are, are going to be required to provide accessible vehicles and strictly make it very clear to these uh, drivers that they have an obligation not to discriminate, that they're, whether they're private individuals operating a business or employees of a rideshare service, however they see themselves at the point where they pick somebody up and they get into their car, they're providing transportation service. And I believe that it's fairly clear in the intent of the ADA that Congress did not intend people who are operating a business providing transportation for people uh, would be able to discriminate against people with disabilities. Whether they own one car or 100,000 cars shouldn't make any difference. Uh, but I think this is gonna take both Congress and the courts stepping up at this point in time and realizing we're not in the 20th century anymore. We're far down the road with technology and other concepts and we, we need to deal with it. Sounds like there's many layers to whether these emerging transportation vendors and how they may or may not become ADA compliant. Let's go ahead and switch gears just a little bit. What about cell phone applications for ride share services being accessible? Is there anything in particular you might say about cell phone applications for ride share services? The ADA does not directly address and require cell phone applications to have accessibility. But Section 255, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, requires communication products and services to be accessible for people with disabilities. So therefore, the services accessibilities need to be readily achievable, meaning something easily accomplished without much difficulty or expense. And personally, I've seen some modifications and provisions, but they are not compliant with the ACA. And in addition to that, I have some personal concerns because I'm seeing more and more technology becoming geared toward audio and audio and speech activation. So for example, when people who are deaf using sign language to communicate or a person with a speech disability wants to use these applications, how do they access that? I'm not sure about what recourse they have available for accessibility for people with hearing or speech disabilities when they're using apps that require speech activation. You know, it's, it's almost like we're so application 
dependence sometimes today and it's going to be interesting to watch where go with accessibility for people with disabilities. Jeff and Paul, where do you see us headed in the future with these emerging transportation options? Yeah, well, I think the world of tomorrow will be even more accessible for everyone. However, with the rise of medical technology and searching for a cure for a variety of people with disabilities, I wonder if the accessibility requirements are even going to matter. Uh, you know, I, I wonder because I'm not sure, Paul, whether you would want to hear. I know a lot of people in deaf culture don't really no. want to hear. So it, No, you're right. Um, what I see is that we keep building things that are flawed for certain people. I mean, from a point of, of you know, looking at back in history, we say, well, nobody really considered, say, 100 years ago, whether the stairs that led to the courthouse were going to be a barrier to some members of society. In other words, we sort of discounted those people. We regarded them as less than people like when you look at that from our perspective today, I mean, hoping we're a little bit more enlightened, we would say those, the perception there was that we're certain people who are flawed and therefore shouldn't have access or didn't, you know, it wasn't our problem to provide them with access. I think today we have to look at it and say, no, 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 that model is entirely wrong. It's the things we have built that are flawed. We need to build new buildings that are accessible to everyone. We need to provide new transportation vehicles that are accessible to everyone. We need to provide technology from the ground up that's, that's accessible to everyone. Um, I work with people in, in the technology field in, in web design and creating applications. And it is so much easier to consider accessibility as one of the key features from square one. Uh, before you even start, you know, figuring out your total design schematic, you have to consider accessibility, whether you're putting up a building or designing a website. It has to be built in from, from the ground up. And that's what I hope going into the future we're going to see is we don't, you know, we don't think about things as well. How is this individual going to bridge this gap between what we're building and their need to access it, we need to think how are we going to bridge the gap to people and make it accessible to everyone. Yes, and in addition to that, I look forward to a barrier-free world, one where universal design is the norm, and that there is no debate, there is no controversy about what you do, what you should not do, what is or what is not accessible. I'm looking forward to a barrier-free world, and that is what we all should be aiming for. And certainly there's going to be challenges in this. Um, we'd like to have this, I guess, oh, yeah. utopian future where we fix everything for everyone. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, know, I know in many of the things that I look at uh, where we make something more accessible for somebody with one limitation, uh, we in the process create a barrier for somebody else. Uh, the, the classic example that I give of this is uh, when we had a world with, with curbs at every street corner for somebody using a white cane, it was pretty clear when they were gonna step off the curb and they were going into the street. 
but that wasn't very accessible for people who used wheelchairs. So once we put the curb cut in and we put a ramp there, all of a sudden that clear delineation of, of where the sidewalk ends and the street begins is no longer there for the person who's blind. So we, we need to, we came up with these devices, we call detectable warnings for people to identify that they're at that curb line. But in so many ways, we always have to be thoughtful and, and think in 360 degrees all the way around and for every ability, what we're doing for one person might not work for another. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff and Paul, both. Um, um, Jeff, I feel your pain with Echo or Alexa. Sometimes she listens and sometimes she doesn't. And Paul, I appreciate, you know, your all's presentation of the fact that universal design would help um, head off a lot of the issues we've been talking about. Um, we're about out of time, Jeff and Paul. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Thank you for giving us an opportunity to discuss this. Uh, I think it's, it's really critical for us to raise these questions going forward to understand that there are gonna be challenges as new technologies come online, whether it's rideshare or you know, VRBOs or Alexa, whatever we're dealing with in terms of technology, we need to be uh, fully cognizant of, of the unintended consequences, the, the places where we, we think we're making something so much better for one uh, person in our society and, and in the same uh, stroke, we're, we're creating a barrier for somebody else. And this is gonna require us to be, uh, especially those of us in this field, to be always uh, diligent and, and observant of what's going on and, and keep on raising the questions and making people who are designing these new products see that they, they have to serve everyone. Yes, and also, I would really like to thank the interpreters as well that made this accessible for everyone, and it really makes a difference. Yeah, it makes it just wonderful for Paul and I to be able to work like this together. Without interpreters, this would really be difficult. Absolutely. Thank you um, to both of our interpreters. And thank you, Jeff and Paul. Our guests for this episode have been Jeff Ames, Accessibility Implementation Executive Consultant at Meeting the Challenge Incorporated, and Paul Simmons, ADA Information Specialist with the Rocky Mountain ADA Center. We thank you for joining us for this episode of ADA Live. This and previous ADA Live episodes are available on our website at adalive.org. If you have any questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can submit your questions anytime online at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800 949-4232. Remember, all calls are free and confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Orozda with Beth Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City 
the movement for improvement. See you next episode. Oh,